Peace be with you. If you got your Bible, your, your, a Bible bringer to the service, get it out. We're going to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. We're going to be looking at 1 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Um, there's usually some in the seats in front of you, uh, or you can follow along on the screens. Um, 1 Kings 19. I'm going to give a little bit of just set up here, because we're jumping right into like a fascinating story. Uh, just, I, I just want, honestly, it's truly one of my favorite sections of Scripture. I love this. I can just sit with it all the time. So we're going to be uh, reading about this prophet, Elijah. Uh, Pastor Barry mentioned him earlier. He's one of the most impressive people you can read about in the Bible. He really is. Um, stuff that just is, seems wild. Um, you can immerse yourself in his story. So Elijah's prophet from, you know, a long time ago during a, a really sad, damaging, destructive time in Israel's, God's people's, like in their, within their history. And um, you know, the people of God who had you know, previously been committed uh, to the covenant and being loyal to God, had, they've drifted. Um, they've, they've drifted under poor leadership. Um, they've drifted into uh, polytheism, which is why in some, some respects we can relate so much to this period uh, because we live in a society that's very pluralistic like that. So their leadership at this time um, was a wicked and really, I would call a cowardly king named Ahab and his violent, um, and, and I'm just telling you, the story will, will highlight this for you, a very, a very violent and destructive wife named Jezebel. Um, and they've just allowed false gods like Baal to be instituted into the culture and into the life of worship of Israel. And so Elijah's been given this task of boldly confronting this false worship. He's, he's calling them into repentance. And, you know, if you're not familiar, prophets in the Old Testament, although they kind of have different stories and all, but they really, there's one underlying theme for prophets in the Old Testament, and then that is they, they're, they, they participate in some um, pretty difficult, dangerous, and unfortunately really discouraging tasks. Um, almost all of them do. And um, Elijah, although he has this difficult, dangerous, unfortunately discouraging task, Elijah was able to participate in some unbelievable acts of God. If you're not familiar, he's, before this reading that we're going to have, he predicts a terrible drought that hits the land for years. He ends up living alongside of a brook and he's being fed by ravens. Um, he, at one point, he encounters a dead child and just leans over him multiple times and prays and raises the child from the dead. Um, it's just crazy what he witnesses and what he participates in. And, you know, how much more, when you think about it, evidence do you need for a man? Like, how much more evidence of an all-good, all-powerful God does one need? And yet, and yet, which is why we're reading it this morning, in this chapter, we see this bold, confident man get weak. We, get, we see a bold, confident man that, that saw, that saw he prayed and made it rain, literally. And yet in this chapter, we see him get afraid, and we see essentially him give up and give in, or at least he tries to. And so let's pick up from there, uh, 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 1. I call this chapter, um, affectionately, I call this chapter snacks, snaps, and pity parties. And you will see why. It's wonderful. You can just stay in your seat because it's quite a bit of a reading here. Um, so Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. 
And then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And, he, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return to, on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, and you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elijah the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, in every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. So a bit of background there. I know that's a lot, but a little bit of background in case you're not familiar. Just in the previous chapter, Elijah has just had a major confrontation with this king Ahab and these joker prophets of Baal, about 450 of them, and, and these prophets of Asherah and 400 of them. And he shows them up on top of this mountain uh, named Carmel. And basically, it's a standoff between this false god Baal and the real god of the Bible. And um, after an embarrassing failure of these false prophets, they're hours, they're praying to this, this God they call Baal to come bring fire down onto this bull that's laid on top of this altar. And they're cutting themselves and bleeding and screaming and crying. It's a real scene, an embarrassing scene where nothing happens because Baal doesn't respond because Baal does not exist. <laughs> and so Elijah stands by and waits. Then Elijah soaks the bull a couple times, just t down, just drenches the bull with water until it falls down into a trench or along the altar on the side. He prays, fire comes down onto the mountain. It's pretty magnificent. You can read about it. The people of Israel, after seeing this, fall down and worship before God. And then they seize these evil prophets and execute them. It's hard to read. 
It's crazy parts of the Bible, I know, sad parts of the Bible, but these are bad dudes. Bad news people. And then, so then Elijah tells Ahab to have a meal <laughs> and then go home to his wife, Jezebel. And what you immediately hear right after that is Elijah follows behind to meet up with him there. He goes and go into the same city as Ahab, the king. So what do you think is in his head? <laughs> like, he's just brought fire down on the mountain and killed these prophets. And yet he's going up to meet with Jezebel, who commands these prophets that he's just slaughtered. What is he thinking? He's thinking, well, change. I mean, now you see, right? Like, now you, now you realize who's, who's, who's really God, who's really in charge. He's thinking, finally, um, leadership awareness. Finally, cultural awareness. He's thinking wholesale change in the right direction. And he's thinking, man, my, my profit work is finally paying off. Right? There's going to be full-scale repentance. The leadership in the kingdom is going, to, is going to fall down in worship. Things are going to start going in the right direction. But he gets no further than the entrance of the city where he's greeted with a message and a warning from Jezebel. She's not falling down in worship and repentance. She's pretty ticked. Right? And the message is pretty simple. It's, I'm coming for you. I'm going to hunt you down. And to be fair, Jezebel means what she says. She doesn't have a history of vital threats. And then we read this in, in verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. There's a lot there in that statement. But you have this bold prophet who brought fire down, fire down. He's been humbled into doubt and fearful running. And that's at the point of the story, when you're reading along in this book, it's it's at this point you're supposed to stop and ask a question. Wait, Elijah, I know you've got someone hunting you down, and that is a legitimate fear. Don't dismiss it. I don't think, and there's no indication in the text that Elijah is a failure because he's scared for his life, that he gets spooked. But man, at the same time, you just saw God rain down fire. Like, you've seen some pretty crazy, uh, ravens fed you, man. Like, this is, you've raised, you've seen dead people raise to new life. What's going on inside of you? How is it that you're giving in? How is it that you're giving up? Why the doubt? Why let the fears get the best of you, Elijah? And here's the thing, and this is, I want this hopefully to stick with us, but what we must realize is that when Elijah encounters this word from Jezebel after a ton of work, hard work, when he encounters the word and the warning from Jezebel, he encounters defeat. And on a deeper level, he's encountering a relentless culture in which God seems to be losing, and the strange, godless culture around him seems to be winning. And what you need to get into the mind and the heart of this man is, is his expectations are shattered. He's run to Jezreel to to see Ahab and Jezebel because he's expecting and anticipating change, and he doesn't see it, and he's utterly shocked and shattered by it. He is shattered 
Uh, his expectations are shattered. He's disoriented. He's afraid. And he ends up in unexpected places and saying unexpected things. Exhausted, taking naps, eating snacks, right, and having pity parties. And there's a huge lesson there as we talk in the series about spiritual doubt and this, this idea of dismantling previously held beliefs about God and trying to figure out what is it, where is it that I stand? Where is it, what is it that I actually believe? Shattered expectations and shattered associations, you know, being associated with certain things and movements, they discourage us. They discourage us, sometimes to the point of shaking the very foundations of our faith. Elijah believed in a God of fire coming down on the mountain, and yet God seems strangely inconspicuous here. And now he fears for his life, and he fears that this whole work that he's been up to is hopeless, and that fear and that discouragement bring doubt into him. Now here's the thing, in James 5, in the New Testament, James picks up this this idea of like prayer. He's encouraging those Christians back then to to give themselves to prayer. Um, And he says this in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So although this ancient prophet's specific circumstances, right, are nothing like ours, like we're not on mountaintops seeing fire rain down and, and burn up soaked bulls, fair enough. But on an emotional, spiritual, and physical level, there's a lot of overlap. To be honest, as you read through it, it's almost cliche. Like, it's when you see what Elijah does in his fear and his shattered expectations, it almost feels like a cliche, and you're like, wow. People aren't that different, actually. This whole new movement of deconstruction is actually not really that new. And here's what I mean. A great study, great case study for how to understand the overlap. And I'm, I'm going to be a little narrow here but I, 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 because I think it's helpful. And, and I, I hope that those outside of my narrow scope can, can still make sense of this. But as I look at my own generation of current believers... Uh, which the stats say are doing the bulk of doubt, doing the bulk of deconstruction. I'm 40. Am I a millennial? Yes? Yes? I'm on the, like, right, that cusp? Okay. Okay, okay, yeah. Well, hang on. (laughs) Hang on a second. You don't even know what I'm about to say. Uh, So here's the thing. Because there's a little bit of critique here, I'll lump myself in. So I love my generation. Seriously, I really do. I really do. Uh, and particularly those a little bit younger than me. Um, it's full of really smart people. I'm not saying I'm one of them. I'm just saying my generation has a lot of really smart. I mean, you know, the, I didn't, but many of them grew up with Google. I mean, it's just you, when you grow up in the information age and you get all this access, it's, it's wild what you're able to pick up and learn. This generation is, is full of gifted and cultured people. And, and so many of us, now hear me, I, I'm not saying all. I, I grew up in this town, so I know that this is not true for everyone. But so many um, that I know, you know, and that we're exposed, so many of us grew up with incredible opportunities and privileges. Incredible. We've been given so much and, and, and learned so much and, 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 like I said, had so many opportunities. And, and I think we've been raised on this slow drip of we're going to do great things. You know? We're, we're going we're gonna to make a ton of money. Um, we're going to have the corner office by the time we're 26. Oh, and by the way, we're going to fix climate change. You know? 
And we're just, one of the markers of the millennial generation, right, is not just their brilliance, but they're wildly, almost delusionally optimistic about their outcomes. That's what the stats say. They must, you can't hardly meet a millennial that would have said, you know, five or ten years ago, yeah, I'm, not gonna, I'm probably going to be middle class and average. They all have said, like, I'm just going to be brilliant and wild and amazing and filthy rich. And it's going to be also an incredibly cool job. This, that's the mark of our generation. Optimistic, self-confident. My theory is that that kind of optimism, that kind of confidence hasn't just played out in the world of the marketplace and, in, and, and maybe in romance and in relationships, but it's even played out in our spiritual lives. And I think it's played out in our association with the church. Like we were going to fix all the bad churches. And that optimism, that, that confidence, that like bold, like we've got it figured out, right? That kind of hope, man, that kind of childlike faith, it's been pummeled and crucified by what seems like a relentless stream of failure, flaws, and defeat in the church. For the last five years, give or take, we've, been, we've seen an alarming number of pastors and celebrity faith leaders fall from sex scandals, money scandals, abusive power, hateful speech, whether that's in the pulpit like here or on their, on their blogs or on social media. We've seen destructive tribalism and factions in, in churches and wholesale, like whole denominations even around issues of, of, of ongoing racism and misogyny and the worship of political parties, you know? I mean, in the wake of George Floyd and during the election, even... Even during, you know, the pandemic, I mean, I would meet with pastors and it was like, there was a, just a, there was like a real sense for a lot of pastors that we would just sit in our offices and talk sometimes and be like, I'm ter- I don't even know what to say. Because no matter what comes out of my mouth, right, like half the congregation will leave. It's just been a, like, it, it's so much strangeness for, for years. And, and like I said, I mean, I, I've even witnessed uh, men that, that were, were formative for me and my, and, and my understanding of who God is and what that meant. And guys that were, I was literally listening to on an AM radio that dates me uh, while I would mow grass, like listening to their sermons who came out as sexual predators. And it's like, what? You know, and then once, twice, it's okay, but then it keeps happening and you're like, what, what is going on? What is going on? It's disorienting. It shatters your expectations. It shatters your associations. You're just, you're confused. You're afraid. I think that when the rampant evil seemed like it was out there and not in here, like, which was naive of us to think, by the way, but when, it, when we categorized it as out there, it was manageable for us. And then once it got inside and we saw it, taking place right in, right in the communities where humility, repentance, grief, right, 
like over the loss of life or any, like the, where communities where the love of God and neighbor was paramount because of the gospel, we got shocked. We, we were like, what is going on? We got shattered. We got confused. And so just like Elijah, these shattered expectations, these shattered associations have made so many of us wonder, where is God in this? Like, what? But that's not the only overlap that I see here in, in this story. There's also a similarity in how Elijah responds. And I think this is incredibly help, helpful for us. There's a similarity with how Elijah responds to his discouragement, which further, I think, deepens his doubt. And we would be so helped by looking at it closely and realizing, oh, yeah, I do that too. And it's unhealthy. First, notice after his expectations are shattered and he's incredibly discouraged and obviously afraid, he isolates himself. It's almost a little passing comment. But you notice it in verse 3. Then he was afraid. Right? He gets the news and he's afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. That's, a, that's a, about a 90-mile journey. So for you marathon runners, you got nothing on this guy. Yeah. And what does it say? And he left his servant there. And he keeps going. Why does he do that? Elijah's servant has been with him throughout his faith journey. And he ditches him. It's hard to know for sure, but here's the thing. Now you've got a man who's scared, he's questioning, he's doubting, and he's out there traveling by himself, totally isolated. And there's no indication that Elijah's gone off to be alone for the sake of prayer and private communion with God, by the way. The context clues seem to point to something far more unhealthy, that Elijah doesn't know what to do or what to think, and so out of discouragement, he abandons his only godly companionship that he has. Here's my point is that a certain level of discouragement is inevitable, is inevitable for us in this world. It's not only, like I said, failures in the church, but also failures in the culture that are around us. But if we're not careful, instead of pushing deeper into community, deeper into fellowship, deeper into fellowship with other believers, many of us are forsaking all of that for what seems like an easier path. And I, don't, I can't totally name it for everybody, you know? But I think for a lot of us, it's just simply, let's just not talk about this or deal with it. It's exhausting. It's just easier to stay by myself based on what I'm seeing. Two, it's not the only thing. He, he, he totally exhausts himself. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at, a, at his head a cake of, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Sleepy boy. Yeah. 
And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. This is so fascinating. So many of us don't care for our bodies, but God does. My toddlers will throw fits, and if you're, if, you're, if you're with it as a parent, you know sometimes there's fits, and it's like, well, there's no really reasoning with you. You have no prefrontal cortex right now. You need to go to bed, right? You get the sense, you get the sense that God is doing the same thing here. That's how merciful he is. He's like, dude, we can't even talk right now. Eat a biscuit, have a jar of water, take a nap, get up eat another biscuit, take a nap, then we'll have a conversation. To be fair, um, you know, God hasn't commanded him to run out into the wilderness so that he can meet with him under this broom tree, even though God does seek him out in his mercy. In this discouragement, right, the reality is Elijah has forgotten his limitations. What are you doing all of this running for, man? Where are you headed? (laughs) You're just running out in the wilderness, and then you finally get under a tree, and you're like, I'm done, I'm toast. Yeah, man. You've been going and going. and By the time he gets to Mount Horab, which is Sinai, by the way, he's traveled 300 miles on foot. Elijah, in his fear, is discouragement. He's just, man, he... He's still a human who can only manage a certain pace, and he's forgotten that. I think he's been so hawked up on adrenaline of following God and seeing God do big things. He's just forgotten the fact that he's human-sized, and he can only do so much. You know, I just, I could spend a lot of time on this, and I won't, but this is just something I think so seldom gets addressed within the church, that we're embodied souls, they, they really, they interplay with each other. We get sick, we get tired, we get worn out. We absorb way too much as Christians. We absorb way too much of the culture around us that is obsessed with what uh, Carl Honore called the cult of speed. Bigger jobs, bigger houses, bigger opportunities, bigger travel, more stuff, more achievements, more more, more, more. A few years ago, you know what one of the fastest growing industries was? Self-storage. It's true. It's true. We have that much stuff. We just keep getting more, more. I mean, we just go at a breakneck pace. And we wonder why at times, you know, for me personally, I've just come to learn. Like, I'm really tired, like, like, Bone, I'm strange tired, like physically, emotionally, spiritually. On Monday, a lot of pastors call it the holy hangover. Like we, after, preach, after Sunday and the weeks, everything that's gone on, like I'm just done. I get panicky and anxious on Mondays, like over weird things, you know? And I've, like I've, I've done this long enough to learn. It's like don't listen to anything inside your head right now. J- just don't. You're, you're tired. You're physically tired. Go to bed. Eat some snacks. Go to bed. You know? And we'll address this tomorrow. Like, we have to respect our bodies. We have to respect pace. 
Like we're not gonna deal with doubt appropriately. We're not gonna deal with spiritual discouragement appropriately, right? If, if we're tired and worn out. Little by little, physical exhaustion when not responded to, begins to play into our spiritual energy. I heard it said recently, you know, one of the things that happened during the pandemic with a lot of pastors like me is they just started producing ridiculous amounts of content. Preach more, talk more, write more. And all of it was fear. It was discouragement. We didn't know what to do with that space. And so instead of just sitting in it and listening, we just produced and I think that so, hap- so often that happens with all of us in some ways. We get really discouraged or afraid, and we just get busy. Because sitting in it and processing in it is just too much for us. Thirdly, he starts telling himself half-truths. Elijah gets up from his snacks and naps and runs another 40 days. 40 days to Mount Horeb, like I said, Sinai, and... and, and I can't get into it. All of this just so mimics Moses, by the way, if you haven't picked up on that already. It's fascinating. Verse 9, he says this, There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, And they seek my life. First off, they, they, she, she, not they, they seek my life to take it away. Now, there's, to be fair, there's a little truth in what he's saying. Things have been really bad, really discouraging. There's been a lot of polytheism. There's been a lot of death. There's been a lot of bad things happening. And yes, it's true. Elijah has been incredibly passionate about following God. But are you actually the only one? Are you actually the only faithful one? The the writer Joan Didion once wrote, we tell ourselves stories to live. We tell ourselves stories to live. Elijah told a story about a world that he has come to believe in his loneliness and discouragement. And friends, when you are lonely, when you are tired, and when you are discouraged, you start telling strange stories inside your head. And you certainly start telling them on the internet. And it's being driven in large part by your discouragement, by your restlessness underneath, your exhaustion underneath, your loneliness. You start revising history. And it goes something like this for him. Elijah's story is something like this. What he's essentially saying here is this. Everyone is terrible. Everything is hopeless. This all has been pointless. And no one understands me. Does this sound familiar? You don't get it. You don't know what I've been through. Well, maybe, maybe not. Elijah's discouragement and fear has led him down this path of telling half-truths. Yes, it's been bad, but he's not the only faithful one left. And God is not losing. As a matter of fact, God corrects him down in verse 18. Did you see it at the very end? How, how, how many numbers off is Elijah? 7,000. 
7,000. Actually, there's about 7,000 faithful followers, Elijah. You're not the only one, buddy. I know it feels like that. It may seem discouraging, but you're not the only one left, and I'm not losing. Now, if you've noticed this, Elijah gives this identical answer of, about him, you know, being the only one left, because twice God asks him the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why'd you come to this mountain, Elijah? Why have you been running, Elijah? What are you up to, Elijah? You see, here's the thing. When God asks questions, and this is just important to realize when you read the scripture, when God asks us questions, he's not looking for information. He's cultivating insight in you. He's getting you to think about what it is down inside of you. It's what he wants to do. And so essentially God is asking Elijah, why are you alone, Elijah? Why are you by yourself? Why, why, Elijah, why are you running yourself ragged? Why, why are you busy, 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 busy? Why, why, why are you assuming, Elijah, that I'm not moving and transforming people right in your midst? Why have you let your fear get the best of you, Elijah? Why, why have you lost all hope, Elijah? What is it, Elijah, that you're actually really looking for? These are the kind of you know, insight that he's trying to cultivate in Elijah. And, and, and God isn't just getting him to see himself accurately. He's also helping him reimagine how God moves and how, how God works. Notice this in verse 11. And he said to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. This is like when the Lord passes by uh, with Moses. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. What's with the low whisper? Or if you've got the KJV, I think it's like still small voice. I like that better. God is teaching Elijah something so important, and he's doing it in a very indirect way. He's saying, Elijah, buddy, I raise people from the dead. I bring earthquakes. I bring fire down on mountains. I bring rain. But sometimes I move in the silence and in the background, and you need to learn that. Sometimes I move quietly, and slowly, and in almost undetectable ways. You've gotten so used to fire on the mountain, you forget who I actually am and how I move. And he's telling Elijah, gently, you must remain steadfast even when it's tough and I'm not dramatically moving. God is teaching Elijah truth that was as necessary then as it is now. That God's power and redemptive story is often slow, painful, and so hidden sometimes, it will test the most ardent of faith, you and I included. When your expectations are shattered, and when you're deeply discouraged by what you see and what you feel, here's a few things to remember from what we're learning in Elijah's story. One, learn to be still. 
Put yourself in a humble posture of curiosity and listening before God. Two, learn, learn, learn to name and interrogate the stories you're telling yourself about God. Like, what are they? What's, what are these stories you're saying? Write them down. Look at them. Interrogate them. Is it really true? Run them by somebody else. This is why doubt gets so bad for people, because when we isolate ourselves, we have no more truth-tellers in our lives to say, hey, man, I, I know I love you, but what you're saying is not actually totally true. I know that's how it feels, but it's not totally true. And I, and I know that that requires a safe person, right? But I would say that. Like, learn to name and identify what is the story that's playing out inside of your head or in your heart about God, about yourself even, and about people around you, right? Journal them if that's helpful. Pray them to God and share them with a safe person. It is possible that when you do so, you will look at it and you will see that there are half-truths and sweeping generalizations there. Three, learn to rest physically. Like, you cannot deplete your body and think that your soul will not be affected. Lastly, keep yourself in fellowship with other believers, even if you don't feel as confident in the faith as they do. And last, you remember this. God isn't giving up on you even when you feel like you're at the brink of giving up on him. Elijah lost his nerve at this point in his life, but God mercifully stuck with him and kept after him. We should keep Elijah's end in mind as we wrap up. I, we, you cannot dismiss it. In Matthew 17, right, we read that Jesus took three disciples up to the mountain. Do you remember this scene? Peter, James, and John. And Jesus is transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. It's blinding. And, you know, it's this scene of like, wow, he is the son of God. He's real. They're shocked, amazed. You remember who Jesus is talking with? Moses and Elijah. Just hanging out, talking. So I think it's safe to say that things ended up pretty well for Elijah in the end. Despite his depression, despite his fear, despite his self-pity, despite his doubt. In the end, Elijah's with Jesus. And what I'm getting at here is this. Elijah was far from perfect. Elijah faltered. Elijah didn't complete his life and his calling and his purpose here on earth without flaws, without doubts, and without setbacks. But Elijah is there in the end with Jesus, not because of his performance, but because of God's mercy. And you have more than just a God who comes down and whispers mercifully. You have so much more. You, you have a God who comes down into all the pain and all the discouragement that you feel and absorbs it. Absorbs it into himself. And this is the mystery and the difficulty, I think, to be honest, of following Jesus, like believing in him, that he is who he says he is, and following him with like loyalty and obedience and trying to figure that out over a lifetime. It's really, really difficult because Jesus, as we see in the, in the Bible, doesn't come down with fire. He came down and like just took it on himself. He came down not being loud, right? He came down quietly and gently and almost in the back, background, in the margins of life. And that's very strange for us. Why wouldn't you make a bigger splash? 
And when it looks like God is losing, and this is what is typified in the gospel, it's what is typified in Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection. When it looks like God is losing, it's always, always, always the opposite. He's winning. It's just hidden. It's hard to see at times. So I would just say trust him. Stick with him. He won't fail you. And so I don't know where you're at this morning, and I don't know what you might be going through. Maybe you don't, you're not struggling with doubt at all, and that's amazing, but it might hit you at some point. And I hope these things stick with you. And I hope, if nothing else, if you're in a strong place as you walk your life with friends or family members that hit that season, you remember these things, and you can go to these stories, and, and you can remember to be compassionate and to speak truth in a helpful way to them. We end each week with the Lord's Supper. We take this bread and we break it. We were reminded of what Jesus told us, that this, this represents his body that was broken for us. And this cup of wine is his blood who's been shed for us. And we take part in this each week to remember and to proclaim him, that he died in our place, that he absorbed our sin, that he absorbed all the evil of the world. And he gives to us his innocence and his righteousness. And so if that's, your, if that's what you're believing this morning, even, even with your flaws, even with your setbacks, if that's your genuine proclamation, you're invited to come forward to this station or this station, taking a piece of the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice. You don't have to be a member of this church. Uh, there just needs to be a genuine belief in Jesus. That's all we ask you. Just honor that time and honor that space. Take the time to pray. Take as much time as you need before you come forward. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we give you thanks this morning for this encouraging word of what it means to doubt, what it means to run, what it means to be alone, what it means to get tired, what it, what it means to tell ourselves stories that are not completely true, not only about ourselves, but about you and the world around us. By your grace, lead us in wisdom, strength, and hope. Give us hope. We love you. We thank you for your son. It's in his name, Christ's name. Amen.